You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for December 2017. Today's episode is titled, A Predicate for Success. Strategic planning is a common annual ritual for most organizations. Depending on the management, some spend a little time developing a plan and others spend considerable time. Regardless of the level of rigor and detail, management must have a vision for what an organization is called to do, which intimates there must be a strategic plan. Management must develop strategic plans aligned with the will and ways of God. Care must be taken to humbly develop plans by seeking divine wisdom and guidance. Strategic planning is therefore a spiritual activity that requires prayer, obedience to scriptural principles, and spiritual discernment. The motive must always be pure, to seek alignment with the will and ways of God. When management functions accordingly, an efficacious predicate for success will be established. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, A Predicate for Success. Well, this morning I want to talk to you out of the book of James, and specifically out of chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, and I've titled today's uh, presentation, Humility and Planning. Now, that may seem like a really strange idea to us. In a culture that's largely... Uh, assumes that Christianity has very little to do with planning of anything, particularly planning in the business arena or the workplace. We largely think that uh, planning to make money is not interesting to God, so he doesn't put any time or energy into it, so we don't tend to talk to him about it or seek counsel from him or seek guidance from him. Well, James is going to uh, disabuse us of that presupposition today with this text in a very startling way, a very direct way. You might even say uh, he's not very polite. He's kind of in our face with this truth. So I may, let me read the text and uh, do some introductory comments, do an exegesis of the text, and uh, some theological points, and finally some application. So the text reads, James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 in the ESV. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town, spend a year there, trade, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what will, tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. Now, the context of this particular uh, text is the fourth chapter of James, and he's been talking about humility, the importance of humility. And what triggered this conversation really was the realities that were going on among this Christian community he's writing to. And what was happening is there was a lot of, a lot of disputes, a lot of conflict. And the conflict had to do with greed. It had to do with money. It had to do with business transactions. And people were selfish and greedy, and they were not happy with how much money they were making. They weren't happy that God wasn't blessing their plans. They weren't happy with, with their will not being done. All kinds of things are happening here. So in the first part of James 4, James you know, lays this out and tells them basically what's going on here is you guys are enemies of God. You're not functioning like Christians. I know you claim to be Christians, 
I know you claim to be born again, and you probably, you gather together claiming to be Christians, but the reality is you're living like enemies of God. That is not the way Christians function. Now remember, as we think about the broader context of this book, James is writing to people who are well, well established and grounded in Scripture. The Scripture being the Old Testament, they know that well. And they are people who now profess to have been born again. They profess to know Jesus Christ. And they've experienced the reality on some level of walking with him. But James is saying, you need to understand that a, that a real Christian is someone who is totally committed to Christ. There's no such thing as a half-hearted Christian, a casual Christian. You are a Christian, which means you are committed or you're not a Christian at all. So this is a very startling book that deals with the reality of being sanctified. You have to understand the tenses of salvation to understand this book. And the three tenses of salvation are this. The past tense of salvation says that I was saved. That is, I was born again at some point in time by the power of the Holy Spirit, something I had nothing to do, do with. It happened to me. And James mentions that in chapter 1, verse 8, when he talks about how he brought us forth by the word of truth. And that word, bring us forth, is a word that is used of birthing something. We have been born again by the Spirit through the word of truth. So we've been regenerated. That is the past tense. The present tense now has to do with living in light of the reality of now we have been born again. And recognizing that we have a lot of old habits that don't just go away as soon as we're regenerated, those old habits have to be defeated. And that's the process of sanctification. That's the present tense. And so we're charged then in James chapter 1, verse 21, to receive with meekness the implanted word so that we may grow up and mature in Christ. And finally, there's a future tense of salvation. That is the culmination of the work of Christ in us. And, and that is we will be then glorified with Christ. And that happens as best we can tell when we transition from this existence to the next. So these are the three tenses. James's major concern is the present tense, sanctification. That's what this book is about, almost totally. There is little reference to the past tense, a little reference to the future tense, and the rest of the book is all about growing up, maturing in Christ. So that's the context, learning to live under the Lordship of Christ. So some key themes that we've seen in this book before now, this particular text in James 4, things like metaphysical awareness, really being able to see reality from God's perspective, understanding trials, how God uses trials and tribulations to build us up, understanding the importance of walking congruently. You have to walk the talk. You have to live according to your profession. If you separate your profession from your life, your profession is not valid. That's startling. Because we are very quick to, to believe anyone that claims to be a Christian. But James's standard is not, not, not your claim, it's your life. What you do, how you live, that validates your claim. We also have the admonition about the tongue. There's a good bit here on the tongue, on money, and on wisdom. True wisdom versus worldly wisdom. And in chapter 4, he's really launched into humility. Because he recognized there was so much so much opposition to the will and ways of God in this community, he wanted to make them aware you are living in pride when you oppose the will and ways of God. So the only proper way to live as a Christian is in humility. 
So he's continuing that discussion now at the end of chapter 4 and applying this discussion on humility to the workplace. I find that just fascinating he would do that. He could pick a lot of things to talk about humility, but he picks the workplace. And he picks specifically strategic planning. Every organization, for-profit, not-for-profit, it doesn't matter, they either wittingly or unwittingly, they do a strategic plan. They lay out, okay, this is what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and where we're going to do it and when we're going to do it and who's going to do it and with whom we're going to do it. All those questions get answered and they launch into executing this plan. So James has obviously seen this a lot. So he appeals to a hypothetical situation that they would readily connect to because all of them probably have experienced this at some level. And he's pointing this out to them to say to them, let me tell you what humility looks like in planning because you guys don't understand. You're planning and living like the world in your businesses, and that is wrong. That is sin. You need to learn to live God's ways. So this is what this text's about. It's about challenging us to think biblically about work and about planning and specific. Now, obviously, there are a lot of levels of planning. There's high-level strategic planning, which is the big picture of what an organization is trying to do. And then there's the, the, the nuts and bolts of how you make that plan work that we might call tactical planning. So a lot of little pieces that go into, you know, together, you know, fulfilling that strategic plan. So I think he's talking about all levels of planning. The principles here, I think, apply to any level of planning. So as we look at this text, the first verse there is, is an imperative. Remember, James has used imperatives throughout the book to, uh, to point out to us things that we should do. And it reminds us again that the idea that when people hear people say, I'm no longer under law, I'm under grace, you've got to get clarity of what they mean. If they mean that they're only saved by grace through faith in Christ alone, that is correct. That's a correct understanding. But we are still under the requirement to obey the commands of Christ. And all you have to do is look at what we call the Great Commission, and you'll see that's exactly what it says. It says we're supposed to go forth in all the world and make disciples of all ethnic groups, and, and we are specifically to do two things. We baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, obviously baptizing those that we see signs of regeneration in, and then we train them to obey the commands of Christ. And yes, that's what the text says. Commands of Christ. Christ has given us lots of commands. And what are the commands of Christ? They are all the commands of Scripture as understood through the lens of Christ. And so who knows how many they are. There are many scholars that have spent their careers trying to tally up all these commands in Scripture. There, there's just a boatload of them. We don't know how many commands there are. But it seems like on every page of Scripture you can find them. And in the New Testament, written in the Greek language, the imperative mood is a part of the grammar. In the English language, the imperative mood is not part of the grammar. It's something that you project through your inflection. But in the Greek language, the imperative mood is projected by virtue of the grammar. And so in James, we have the imperative mood showing up over 50 times. And then we have the implied imperative. You can imply a command in Greek as well. You can be very explicit by the, by the grammar, but sometimes you can apply it by other grammar. 
So there are about 60 times that we have imperative mood used or an implied imperative used. Most of the time, over 50 times, it's the, the actual specific grammar, imperative grammar that's used. Well, that's what's used here. When he says, come now, this is an imperative. This is the grammar speaking here. Come now, you who say. And then he poses this hypothetical situation. Today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town, spend a year there, trade to make a profit. Well, that's a business plan. I've done scores of business plans over my career as a consultant, and every one I've ever done has said the same thing effectively. We're going to go someplace, we're going to do something, and we're going to make a bunch of money. That's what they always say. That's what he's just saying, hey, that's what everybody does. That's how everybody thinks. And he's saying, your thinking is wrong. It is off. And it's not that you not, are not going to make a profit. That's not the point. You've got to see profit properly. First of all, you have to recognize you cannot make a plan, a business plan in presumption. Because you don't have the potency, human potency, or the prophetic gifting to know the future. You are a created being. We are all created beings. God alone has the future in the palm of his hands. We are his creatures. We are his servants. And we are subject to him. It's his universe. It's his rules. It's his will. It's his ways. And the only way that we will enjoy his favor is alignment with him. So he's trying to get them to really humble themselves. Get off your high horse. This idea that you think you've got, a, you've got this strategy that you're going to go and you're going to execute your will according to your ways and you're going to accomplish your purpose. That is so, so worldly. That is so non-biblical thinking. And so he makes that point by saying, yet you do not know what, what tomorrow will bring. And that's very true. We don't really know all that's going to happen tomorrow. Well, we think the sun's going to rise. Uh, I think we'll have food tomorrow. I think we'll have air to breathe. Well, yeah, maybe some little things like that. But you don't know what's going to happen in detail. You don't know all the things that you will be surprised at some point. You will be shocked at some point. You may be stunned at some point. You don't know. You don't know if you're even going to wake up in the morning. When you wake up in the morning, you wake up at the pleasure of God. That's the only reason you wake up. And so when you, when you really get this right, when you see God as God, as the creator, and we're creatures, and you get under him that is submitted humble and teachable under him. Now, you can begin to think differently. But right now, he's trying to really startle them into recognizing the pride in which they are approaching life. He asked a rhetorical question. What is your life? Okay, And the rhetorical question is, well, you should say, well, I, I really don't know. I mean, it's, I, I don't have the answers. Only my creator has the answers. That's how you should look at it. And to reinforce that, it says, you are a mist that appears for a little while, and then you vanish, you're gone. And that's so true. We are here in the midst of space and time for probably 70 to 100 years. For some, maybe it's only 50 or 60 or 100 years, somewhere in that time frame. Others even shorter. We don't know. But we know that this universe has been around for thousands of years. At the very least, you know, we're, we're working on 6,000 years, at the very least. And there's some that believe it's a lot longer than that. And we're here for just a little period of time. So one question to ask yourself to kind of, kind of get yourself thinking about this correctly is, where were you 100 years ago? Well, you weren't here. Where will you be in 100 years? Not going to be here. 
So did the universe exist 100 years ago? Absolutely. Will it exist 100 years from now? Probably. We don't know. We don't know when the return of Christ is, but we know this. We are here for just a short period of time. Very short in the context of the time frame that God is executing his plan, this meta-narrative in time. So we're a mist that appears for a little time and vanishes. Now this, this phrase is not meant to minimize the purpose of God in us. It's meant to keep us humble and recognizing that it's not about us. It's about him. The right question is never what's in it for me. The right question is what's in it for God. That is the only right question in any scenario. So humility means to get low. James is trying to get us very low in our opinion of ourselves, not to, to disparage us, but he's trying to get us low to get us humble before God and dependent upon him, his will and his ways. And then he says, instead, you ought to say, instead of boasting in your arrogance, presuming that you know the future, presuming you know how you're going to make a bunch of money, presuming that money is the, the end game of life, which it is not, this is what you ought to say. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Wow. It's all about his will. In the Greek language, there are, there are types of conditional uh, sentences. Uh, this particular condition is called the third class condition. And what it says, third class condition means that fulfillment is uncertain, but still could most likely could happen. What he's saying is, James, is you pick that particular the grammatical form to speak to these professing Christians and basically say, you professing Christians, it's not certain that you're going to line up with the will and ways of God, but some of you will. Some of you will. That's the encouraging thing here. So he's recognizing that they're kind of implicit here. He's not being explicit, but implicit. He's recognizing that probably some believers, professing believers among us that are really not believers at all. Now, that's, that's really hard for us. We, we tend to be very benevolent and, and generous in our perspective about people. We don't tend to be very discerning. And you know, when you're not discerning, you're going to have a really hard time recognizing reality. For example, you recognize that there is a false church. I hope you recognize that. And that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. I hope you recognize that too. Well, you may recognize those principles, but can you look out there and see it? Can you see the false church? Can you point your finger there, look at a situation, evaluate it according to scripture, and conclude with confidence, with biblical level of confidence, I believe that church is not lined up with Christ. Now, that's very hard. And of course, a lot of people would say that's very judgmental. That's not judgmental. That is discerning. There's a difference between judgmental and discerning. Judgmental is when you say, I would never do something and you're being critical and, and condemning someone else. Discerning is when you're able to see reality. You've got to be able to inspect the fruit, as Jesus said, to see reality correctly. You've got to make determinations about what you believe this reality is reflecting. And so we have to begin to recognize that in any Christian community, there's probably going to be some people masquerading as Christians who are not Christians at all. There's going to be, in any community, it's got multiple local churches. 
there's going to be local churches masquerading as churches that are not churches. There's going to be, among the various streams of Christianity, there's going to be streams that are masquerading, but are not really, not really Christian at all. Can you see them? Can you recognize them? This is what it is to be living wisely with the Creator. You recognize reality. So likewise here, with discerning the will of God in business, you have to discern when God's calling you to do something and when it's your flesh. And if it's your flesh, repent. And the, way that, the only way we can discern God really directing us is we have to be humble. We have to be low. We have to be under his will and his ways, and that is our agenda. And so our question should always be, in any kind of planning, is this the Lord's will? If it's not the Lord's will, why, why are we thinking we should do it? That is a, that's one of the hardest realities that I have seen as a consultant working with professing Christians in the business world. This is a very hard reality. Almost no one that I have found really does this very well, even among the churches who plan. And many churches don't plan, but the ones that do, uh, they find this very, very taxing. Well, it goes on to, to say, here's the default. Here's how you typically think. As it is, you boast. That is, you're full of pride and you're arrogant because now you're telling everybody you got it figured out. You know what you're going to do. You know how you're going to do it. And that happens in all kinds of organizations. They think they got it figured out. All such boasting is evil. It's sin. Sin is not a word that we normally use in the workplace. My, my class here this past week, I asked them how many had worked. There were about 60 students in the class, and most every one of them had worked. I said, how many of you have ever heard in your workplace anyone talk about sin in your workplace? And no one ever had, because we don't talk about sin in the workplace. That is like, what's sin got to do with the workplace? We just make that assumption. This is our arrogance. This is how we, professing Christians, are living. We're not living in reality. We're in unreality. And so he's saying, that's wrong. That's evil. Recognize sin. Recognize when you're lined up with God. Quit thinking that you've got it figured out. You are arrogant. You're prideful. Furthermore, the final, you know, kind of the linchpin in all this is you will be held accountable. Look what he says. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. When you know that you are supposed to be a, dis a discerning person seeking alignment with the will and ways of God in every area of life, whether it's your family, your local church, your business, your community, the public policy of your community, everything should be lining up with the will and ways of God. All plans should be an effort to seek alignment with God. And anytime you accept plans that are not lining up with God and you have some position of authority and can do something about it, you will be accountable. That's sin. That's sin. This is a startling, in-your-face truth. So let me give you a synthesis here of some theology I think it's important for us to, to see in this text. First of all, we should see that God is a sovereign creator. He is executing his will, and he is executing according to his ways, and only his will and his ways will stand. Secondly, we have to really recognize how fallen we are. We are as fallen creatures. We are unable 
We do not have the power nor the willpower. We don't have the physical power, the willpower, the mental power, the spiritual power. We don't have the power to obey God. We can never do enough good things to please him. We desperately need Christ. And our default fallen condition, you know, once we come to Christ, positionally we are in Christ, but we are now, as far as our practices, we're continuing to have a lot of bad habits in us that have to be eradicated. That's why we need to be transformed continuously. The present tense of salvation is the game of Christianity for all of us, growing up in Christ. And that's the mark of a true believer is they grow up in Christ. Thirdly, we will all be held accountable. You know, in a society driven by wanting to be inclusive and wanting everyone to be kind and we call what we call loving to one another, you know, you don't hold anybody accountable. That is not biblical. God holds people accountable. He expects us when he gives us responsibility to hold people accountable. So as a parent, you should hold your children accountable. If you are a church, a church leader, you need to hold people in the congregation accountable. If you are a business leader, you need to hold your workers accountable. Where, and the accountability is about alignment with God. It's not accountability to your will or ways. It's accountability to God, what he wants done. And the fourth thing to note here is if you see nothing else here, hopefully you recognize that work is a spiritual activity. Work is a spiritual activity. It is designed and intended by God to be done in relationship with him. Adam and Eve walked with God every day in the garden. They're tilling the ground, and every day they could spend time with God. This is their communion with him. This is a picture of how they stay connected with him. Their work was an extension of their relationship with him. So work is a spiritual activity. The rules, the principles, the mindset that you need to work well comes from him. And he is a spirit being. So work, work is not just about what we do in the tangible to make money. Work is how we glorify God. Work is how we serve God. Work is how we worship God. Let me give you some application. You know, one of the things I've been doing as we're going through James is try to synthesize these imperatives into commands. So, and try to do this in the spirit of what Jesus meant when he talked about we need to train disciples to be obedient to his commands. So, if Jesus were going to synthesize this command, he might say something like this. So, I, this is just my, uh, my conjecture about what he might say. He might say, planning in all jurisdictions is a process of discerning and therefore aligning with the will and, by implication, the ways of God. Therefore, planning is a spiritual exercise that requires a humble heart, a pure heart, that is, a heart that's free from greed, and godly wisdom. Not, not worldly wisdom, but godly wisdom, which means that the so-called best practices many times are not best practices because they have not been vetted by, by God's wisdom. Anytime you hear somebody talk about best practices, you should immediately say, well, let's evaluate those practices based on God's wisdom, based on the word of God. And those that pass through the fire, that test, I'll adopt those as best practices. But if they don't pass through that test, you know, not a best practice. And so one clear example of that is this very thing here. 
is how strategic planning is typically done in most organizations. It's just like what James says. Today or tomorrow, we'll go to such and such a town, spend a year there, and trade to make a profit. We think that's how you do a strategic plan, and we call that best practice. That is not best practice. That's best worldly practice. Best practice is what James admonishes us to do. He says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live. That is, that we will rise up in the morning. We exist at his pleasure and do this or that. You see, we're only here to do one thing, and that is to do his will according to his ways. That's best practice, not prideful, worldly, strategic planning. Now, you know, this is a very high bar. Now, please know I'm not setting this bar. This is James setting the bar. So as you think about this, keep in mind, this makes life a spiritual exercise at every level because you plan in every area of life. You have a plan when you get up in the morning, what you're going to wear, where you're going to go that day, what you're going to do. That plan requires that we, we seek alignment with God. What does God want me to do today? What does God want me to wear today? What does God want me to eat today? What does God want me to do for exercise? How does God want me to handle this stress point? You know, how does God want me to handle this conflict? You see, everything ultimately comes back to a spiritual exercise. And so now we better understand what Paul meant when he said, pray without ceasing. You see, we need to be continually in prayer before the Lord about everything continuously all day. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. That word pray is the verb. It's in the imperative mood. This is, this is a command. This is not optional. This is how believers live. They live prayerfully considering everything they do because it's all about discerning his will and his ways. This makes business planning a spiritual process. So this makes business problem solving a spiritual process. When I was in Asia a few years ago, I was sharing my book with a group of business people and I asked them, you know, how do you solve problems in the marketplace? And oh, they were quick to respond to, oh, well, we sit down and make a list of the pros and cons of of various scenarios, you know, we hear the options, hear the pros and cons, and we weigh the pros and cons and pick a choice, one that looks best to us. I said, well, how do you solve problems in your churches? And all these people attend churches, and, and I said, oh, well, well, we pray. And I said, well, why is it different? And they all immediately just like were stunned. They were staring at me like they had never thought about that. And the reason for it is because they don't think biblically about how to approach problems in the workplace. They approach problems as, based on secular wisdom, even though these people all would profess to be Christians. This is where sanctification has not kicked in in their life. They need to be sanctified, washed, cleansed of worldly thinking, and start thinking biblically about how to solve problems. And it always starts with prayer. Lord, what is your will? What do you want done in this particular situation? Finally, I just want to tell you a quick story about um, something that happened to me when I was invited to do a planning session for a company about 10 years ago. And this is a company of about uh, 12 executives, and all of them profess to be Christians. And so we sat out in this planning session, and um, I like to start planning sessions by going to this text. And so I, I read this text to them. 
And then I made the comment, uh, gentlemen and ladies, we're both there. Uh, we're here for one purpose, and that is to seek to discern the strategic plan that God has for this organization. That's our objective. At the end of the day, that will be success. If we believe by faith we have discerned his will, you know, then I will say that our time will have been successful. But if we don't discern his will, all we come up with is good, you know, fleshly ideas, i.e. good meaning we think they're good, then we're not a success. Because the only thing that counts in the kingdom of God is his will, not his ways. Now, that room was totally silent. Finally, one of the ladies in the group spoke up and said, well, um, you know, we're just here to figure out how to make money and, you know, be successful in business. And I could see immediately these people had no concept of a biblical view of planning. They were in pride. They were arrogant. They were enemies of God. And they professed to be Christians. It almost made me weep in that room. It was so sad. But sadly, that's how so many people think about business, in family, and even in church, and certainly in public policy. They disconnect these things from God and think we, in and of ourselves, have the right and the power to do whatever we want to do. And we are deceived when we think that way, and we are in sin. May God give us grace to recognize that and to repent and to turn to Him and to learn to live day by day, moment by moment, communing with Him, in prayer, seeking His will and His ways in every decision. In Jesus' name, amen.